This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Piki mai kake mai and welcome to Our Changing World from RNZ National. Here's Sonia Sly investigating the reliability of children as eyewitnesses with psychologist Deirdre Brown from Victoria University of Wellington. How much do children truly see and understand about their environment and the situations that they find themselves in? And if they were to account for events that happened on any particular day that week, in the past month, or even months ago, how reliable would they be in accounting for details and events that have happened? I'm Sonia Sly. I'm looking at children as reliable eyewitnesses. So here's a recent experience that I have to share first. I took my three-year-old to the barber for the first time a few weeks ago. The barber coaxed him into the big leather chair, popped a bright-coloured waterproof wrap around him. He was friendly. This will be fun, buddy. So he proceeded to cut one side of my son's hair before moving to the other side. And as he began parting the right side of his hair, he pulls me over. Hey, uh, do you want to come and have a look at this, just so you know it wasn't me? I was suspicious. How could anyone have gotten to the underside of my son's hair to cut a blunt straight line that I hadn't seen. Been playing with the scissors, have you, buddy? And so my son replies, yes. But anyway, so I sit and watch like a hawk, with my eyes burning into every single cut that the barber makes so from that point on. I immediately just thought, OK, well, this hairdresser is lying. Yes. And I'm pretty sure he felt, he looked like he felt guilty Dr Deirdre well. Brown of Victoria University has been conducting research into children as reliable eyewitnesses and her research looks at the role of how children are questioned to provide accurate answers and feedback. Suggesting yes. that he did it. That's a perfect example of the worst kind of question to ask. Mm. Firstly, it's a very closed question. Have you been playing with the scissors? Really the only options to answer there are yes or no. And the way it's worded, strongly communicates what the hairdresser thought the answer was, whereas apart from the possibility that the hairdresser had done it, there are multiple other potential explanations. And so tone and emotional body language are some of the other things that researchers have shown have a real impact on um, children's likelihood to agree with those sorts of questions. Because children are, I mean, they want to please. And they're also, from a very young age, schooled up to know that they are meant to answer questions. One of the challenges, I think, for children who have to come into this formal investigation process is that all those expectations are turned on their head. When they go to preschool, they're constantly having um, engagement with these adults whose job it is to round out their development and give them lots of experiences and help them learn about language and the world and so on. And so they're asked questions all the time. And it's not okay when they're asked those questions for them not to answer. And if they don't answer or they say, I don't know, chances are the daycare teacher or the parent will, will have another the go and say, well, you know, but what do you think? And encourage them to guess, if you like. 
And this is where I add that my son was telling the truth. As it turned out, his friend at preschool cut his hair the Friday before, and likewise, he returned the favour. The other thing too is that children aren't necessarily good liars. So surely, even if you're eliciting a response that isn't honest, you can read the body language or, you know, tell that they're actually lying. Um, unfortunately, we don't have any clear-cut signs like that. So um, children, just like adults, do all sorts of things when they lie. And as it turns out, body language is not a very reliable indicator of truth or not. Equally, children change their answers when they're telling the truth. Really? Yes. Yeah, so if you continue to ask a child a question, perhaps because they're assuming if you were to ask me again, I mustn't have said the right thing the first time, and so they will shift. And we see this as a real problem for children who do go to court and are then cross-examined. One of the purposes of that style of questioning is to get children and adults to look like they're not very credible, and one way of doing that is to get them to change their answer. So how reliable can children be in terms of providing evidence for cases where they may potentially be at risk? Alice was convicted in 1993 for child sex offences while working at the Christchurch Civic Crash and spent seven years in prison. He's always protested his innocence, with the argument that his conviction was based on unreliable evidence from children interviewed in a leading way. The Peter Ellis case provided the impetus for a body of research to take place around how children were questioned in the investigation, which had implications not only for Ellis, but also the children. We don't have a good way of identifying, even for adults looking back into their childhood, whether or not the things they're talking about are likely to have happened or not. So that that was the early 90s here in New Zealand, and... 25 years on, I think we know an awful lot more about what children are capable of, but also their vulnerabilities and what we as adults need to take care of to make sure that we're not contaminating what it is that they say and leading them to, over time, develop memories about things that didn't happen. But unfortunately, often the kinds of questions that are concerned adult would ask would be precisely the kinds of questions that might lead the child to, over time, develop a different kind of memory for what it was that they were first talking about. Because what's really interesting about um, the development of false memories is there's nothing about them that, that lets us identify that they're true or not. In research studies that compare true and false memories, we don't see any difference in the level of detail or the level of sort of personal involvement that the children express. So they become quite indistinguishable. And for those children... They are felt like genuine memories. And so in the Peter Ellis case, for example, the young people in that case developed clear and firm memories of having been abused. And of, even and of, if they weren't. Even if they weren't, and they've lived accordingly. Research suggests that symptoms of maltreatment in children are difficult to assess because some of the obvious signs like bedwetting and nightmares are common occurrences amongst children of a particular age. And for those children who are exposed to maltreatment on a more regular basis, providing evidence can be complex. For many children it's part of their daily reality and so it becomes even more challenging for those children to separate out particular instances of when somebody hurt them police and the courts often need to have very precise detail to allow the person who's accused to mount a defence. That can be a real challenge, again for adults, but particularly for children who have started perhaps to experience 
what usually happens when somebody hurts them. And that becomes easier to remember than what happened on a particular occasion. There have been studies that show that children remember stressful events more. There have been studies that show children remember stressful events less. <laughs> and there have been studies that show no difference between stressful and more positive events. So we have the entire possible range of outcomes. So does that just come down to an individual and how they process that information and are learning to cope, like those exactly coping right. mechanisms? What, what we're learning really is that, first of all, we don't have a perfect litmus test, if you like, that lets us say this child is telling the truth and this child is not. The second thing that we've learned is that, like you've said, whatever a child tells us is going to reflect the interaction between things about the experience, so maybe how often it happened, how long ago it happened, how many times it happened, how involved they were, whether that was something they saw versus something that happened directly to them, those kinds of things. And if it's a child that's under the age of five, they're not going to have an idea of sense of time. Like that's They right. don't know what six months ago that's is. That's right, and they don't know what six months ago is. They don't know what five minutes is. So they won't have a very good understanding of how long something lasted as well as how often it lasted and how long ago it, it happened and then happened since then. So you mentioned age, and that is one of the things we know most about, but also things like children's language skills, their intellectual ability, their uh, sense of attachment to their caregivers, all of these kinds of things can impact. And then I think most importantly, how they're questioned or how they're interviewed, because we can't change those other things. We can't we could set up processes where ideally we can facilitate children disclosing earlier and we can try and have resourcing that means that when they do disclose, we interview them as soon as possible. But ultimately, how they're interviewed is the only thing we can directly impact to make sure that children are supported in telling about their experiences in a way that means that for those children who have been harmed, appropriate action can be taken. And for children where perhaps they are talking about something that in fact didn't happen, then the people that they're accusing are also protected from the fallout. Deidre's research focuses on the language that adults use in a line of questioning and how children are likely to respond given their developmental age. Some of the research has involved placing children in monitored or planned situations or using observational exercises. I'm going to have a look at this and see what I can remember and then we're going to, you're going to have a line of questioning for me. Hi, may I help you find something this evening? Yes, I need some Chardonnay. Can you suggest something, please? Oh, yes. We have a wonderful... You too! Get down on the floor, now! So tell me everything that happened that you can remember from um, the time that you walked into the store. Were they looking for Sauvignon Blanc? And I was looking for a bottle of wine. And what was the next thing that happened? A man, I guess, who works at the store. I saw him moving across the room. Mm -hmm. then, so right from the beginning, we've stepped away from real life. And this is one of the challenges, I think, in doing research in this area, is how do we set up situations where we can try and control all of the messiness of a real-world situation and isolate different things about what's going on for children or what's going on for the interviewer to see the impact that they have on the kind of evidence that we get from, from children. But then how do we try and accommodate 
all of that messiness that we tried to hold constant. One of the ways we do that is to set up a situation like this where we might watch a video or we might stage an event in children's classrooms and we might then, perhaps if we're interested in the impact of delay or how much time goes past from when a child has an experience to when they first talk about it, we might interview some children straight away and some children we might not interview for four weeks, six weeks, 12 months even to see how well they remember compared to the children that were talked to very quickly. And of course when something happens to a child, they don't necessarily firstly even recognise that what's happening shouldn't be happening and they don't know yet whether or not they will talk to somebody about it. And then if um, things progress to a formal investigation, they won't have any sense of the kinds of things that it will be important for them to have remembered and be talking about to the police officer or the social worker who's talking to them. But interestingly, Deirdre discovered that regardless of how memories play out for children, sometimes they have a propensity to get so involved that their imaginations just simply run away with them. So one of the studies we did was looking at whether or not these human figure drawings... It's meant to be gender neutral, but I don't oh, think it is. It, no. looks, it looks like a boy with no genitals. But these kinds of drawings um, are often used in forensic interviews around the world to get children to show on the drawing where they were touched. And we wanted to know, well, how well can children actually use these drawings to represent their own bodies and to, you know, make marks? In this particular study, we had children interact with someone who was acting as a photographer who dressed them up in a costume, a pirate's costume. And while they were putting the pirate's costume on the child, they touched them in a number of different places. So they put an earring on their ear and they wiggled the ear and said, how does that feel? And then patted them on the shoulders and said, okay, now look, you're a pirate. They put a waistband around them and then patted them on the hips and they put a wristband on the wrist and squeezed it. They had some pirate boots to put on, so the children had to take their shoes off and while the photographer was getting the boots ready, she tickled them on the feet. And you've marked them in red here. So we interviewed them, we said, tell us all about the time that you had your photo taken at school in a costume. And then at the end, we pulled out these drawings and we said, OK, I want you to show me on this drawing where the photographer touched you. So a perfect performance would look like this. There would be crosses in these places. Shoulders, hip bones, hand, two feet in the ear. Yeah. Only crosses where something happened, no crosses where something didn't happen. Here's an example of one of the children in our city. I got touched on the genitals, on the knee, on the behind, on the elbow. There are some correct ones. There are some incorrect leaving outs, like the ear. There are touches that did happen that the child hasn't reported. Whenever they put a cross, we then said to them, well, you tell us all about what happened with that touch. And some of what they said then made it seem less of a problem. It looks like it's near the genitals, but they might have said, oh, she patted me on my leg and perhaps went up here. But some of the explanations actually inflamed the situation. So here's some examples of some of the quotes. One child said, she touched me and it made me feel sick. Another child said, she tickled my bottom. And another child said, she kicked me on the chin and it bled. I was the photographer. (laughs) And what was interesting was when we interviewed these children, we brought them into the university in Lancaster. This happened in the UK. And their parents sat in an observation room with me, watching through a window while they were interviewed. And when we came to this part of the interview and children were saying things like this, you know, the parents were looking at me sideways, very concerned. And I said, 
I promise you, these things didn't happen when we have a video of the recording and you're welcome to take it home. And they were just blown away because listening to the children, they sounded very convincing. They were confidently making these crosses on the diagrams and then going on to give these sometimes very detailed explanations of completely false events. So our conclusion from that study was that these diagrams certainly don't help children because although you do get more details being reported, chances are those details aren't very accurate. Are they still using them? In New Zealand, the recommendations are that they would only be used at the end of an interview to clarify something that the child has already said. And that's an important distinction because in this study, often they were saying entirely new things. What is it in children that would encourage them to add these additional elements that never happened? Well, for some children it's possibly um, they just get overly engaged in the task and they lose sight of the fact that they're supposed to be talking about a particular event and to only tell the truth and so on. For some children I think they started seeing it as some sort of puzzle or colouring in kind of activity. For some children I, I think they thought, well, if you're asking me questions about these things, then I, it must have happened, and so I should make a cross here because that's how I'd be good in this interview. I think there's a number of reasons why they could be really harmful. Thanks to Deidre Brown from the School of Psychology at Victoria University of Wellington. Thanks for listening to this Our Changing World podcast. You can stay in touch with us on Twitter at RNZ Science. Matewa. 